When I was a kid, my family got this cherry tree, and I remember going with my family to the nursery, and uh, we got the, the cherry tree, picked it out. It was kind of a family affair. We bring it back home, and me and my dad dug up this hole right in the middle of our yard to, to, to drop the cherry tree in. And I remember throwing the dirt back over it after first breaking up the roots a bit. And, and then we watered it and uh, we were, looked at it and said, all right, do your thing, you know. And uh, I remember waiting and waiting and waiting for fruit and nothing for a year or two. And then it was probably year three or four. We got some, some really mediocre cherries, you know, that, that came in. And then the next year... Cherries were a little bit better than the previous year. And then quite a few years into, we finally started to get some really, really good cherries. Started to produce some, some nice, edible, not kind of tart, sour cherries. And, and what we're praying for this summer is that we would all mature to the point that we're really bearing fruit. That it's not forced, that yes, it takes some time for you to grow and your, your faith to begin in maturity to start to bear fruit as God's Spirit is working within your heart. Now, what started to happen at the Wyatt family cherry tree is it started to produce some cherries as my friends would come over because of this cherry tree. And they'd, they'd pick a couple cherries and they'd hang out a little extra longer than they normally would. And I remember in my front yard as a kid, we would, we would take take logs that were split, and then we would lay a, a piece of wood over top of it. We'd make these jumps with our bikes, you know, and then we'd get crazy and, and j- lay down right b- behind the, the jump and jump over each other until one kid got a good tire mark across the chest. And we would climb trees, and, and we would play hide-and-go-seek and, and do all kinds of fun stuff. But it was all while eating cherries when the, the tree was in season and, and can we just dream together for a moment as a church? Let's just, let's just kind of dream together for a moment. What would it look like if you were like that cherry tree? If, if you were, were bearing fruit and, and others were drawn to you and they wanted to, the, to, to enjoy your fruit like the kids at, at my house, just kind of hanging around, just kind of drawn to the fruit that you're bearing. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. What would it look like if you began to bear some, some fruit? Well, let's go bigger. What would it look like if we, we all collectively were like a cherry tree and we, we all were bearing fruit that other people were able to enjoy and we were all planted strategically throughout our neighborhoods bearing fruit and, and we created an orchard, so to speak, or, or a spiritual ecosystem. And, and we were bearing fruit and, and our trees started to get close to each other and, and kind of created this canopy of, of gospel, Jesus, Holy Spirit shade that, that served our community well with these fruits of the, the Spirit. How cool would that be if individually we were bearing fruit and then collectively we were bearing fruit in such a way that the climate started to change. It'd be so cool. Now here's what's awesome about us bearing fruit the way God tells us to bear fruit is that unlike that tree in my front yard, we're not stationary. Unlike that tree, we're, we're mobile. Jesus says it this way in John chapter 15 verse 16. He says, I chose you and appointed you that you should 
go and bear fruit. He's appointed you to this. This is your divine assignment, your divine appointment that you should go, you should be mobile and you should bear fruit, that you should get out of your house, you should turn off Netflix, you should shut the computer, you should, you should be moving and, and bearing fruit in your neighborhood and community organizations and your children's schools, serving with your, your church family, maybe mentoring your kid, getting out there and getting to know your neighborhood and, and your neighbors and, and bearing fruit. Our trees have wheels. And if you don't go bear fruit, what's the alternative? You stay in your bear fruit and your fruit starts to fall to the ground and it just starts to kind of rot. Like if you've ever gone apple picking and you see lots of rotten apples on the ground and something within me, I don't know about you, but within me just says, man, what a waste. People got to pick these fruit faster. Now, the first and most foundational fruit in this list of fruit that we get in Galatians chapter 5 is the fruit of love. Anybody love love? We love love, don't we? But I don't know that we really fully often get love the way God intended it. So let's read together Matthew 22. Let's just do the whole thing, 34 through 40. Matthew twenty two thirty four 34 says, But when the Pharisees heard... That he, that's Jesus, had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asks him a question to test him. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments depend or hang all the law and the prophets. Is that familiar? For many of you, I'm sure you're, you're familiar with this passage. For me, this used to be my mainstay passage, if I can just be honest. When I was 17 years old, I had my very first sermon. I got invited to preach at, at, at a church, and, and, and I preached that sermon. That sermon, some variation of it, was my mainstay, just my go-to passage over and over and over. And I remember those first handful of sermons getting up there in front of the, the, the people that I was preaching and just being nervous out of my mind. I mean, my knees were shaking. I had to have, you know, a, a bottle of water because I just couldn't get words out. I was just so dry mouth and, and nervous. And I remember people kind of giving me, you know, some coaching points on, you know, how to deal with nerves, some of the traditional stuff like, you know, just picture them all in their underwear. And I kind of felt like that was weird, not sanctified for church. And so I said, okay, I'll pass on that one. Um, try picturing, picturing them in, you know, chicken costumes or whatever. It just didn't work. And, and I just, I would just get up there and, and fight through it. But what seemed to happen every single time was I would just jump into it nervous and nerves would just start to kind of go away. And I would just start to preach passionately Matthew chapter 22, because I'm telling you, this for me was a passage that I was just so passionate about just so loved this passage and and as I grew more comfortable with preaching I started to mix it up a bit and go to other passages and go to Bible college and then to seminary and started to you know move on to more sophisticated texts you know and and learn the original languages and 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 try to go a little bit deeper and and what I found was I you know kind of leave this passage in the 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 dust And, and today you know we believe that every single page of the scriptures is breathed out by God, is, is youth, 
useful, it's profitable. We're, we're called as pastors to, to teach to you the whole counsel of God. So we're real committed to, to teach you the, the whole counsel of God, every single page of this book. Yet, yet at the same time, one of the things I've learned through the years is that our desire to let's go deeper, let's, let's go further, oftentimes masks an inability to, to, to live out some of the most simplest of commands. And, and today's passage is one of the most simplest of commands. It's familiar to, to probably any of you who grew up in, anywhere near the church. And so I'm concerned. I'm concerned for not just us locally, but for believers globally for how we handle this particular passage of Scripture that is so important that Jesus would say, on this, the whole Bible hangs on this. So let's grab some context. If, if you look at chapter 21 of, of the book of Matthew, we have the triumphal entry. That's the end of Jesus' three-year ministry. And, and he's going into Jerusalem here. He would die later that week. He rides on a donkey. He's self-fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah 9, 9 which says humble and, 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 and mounted on a donkey. He would come bearing salvation. And that enraged the religious leaders because they said, see what he's doing there? He's, he's claiming to be the Messiah. He's claiming to be the, the one. And, and he gets off that donkey. He goes into the temple. He flips over tables saying, you guys are doing it all wrong. Your hearts are not there. Nonetheless, throughout his last week in Jerusalem, people are listening and just, just hanging on to every single word that he, he, he shares because he teaches in, in a way that as though he has some kind of power, some kind of force but behind him. And, and meanwhile, behind the scenes, everybody's listening to him. Religious leaders are gathering together and they're conspiring as to how they're going to kill him. If you look at verse 15, chapter 22, it tells us that the Pharisees went and they plotted how they might entangle him in his words, get him to say something wrong. My kids do that to me all the time. Like, did you just say maybe, Dad? Did you say maybe? Because I think that means yes. And so they, they hold me to that. They just entangle me. In the, they're trying to do that to Jesus, trying to trick him up, uh, trip him up here. And then verse 34 tells us that, that Jesus had just silenced the Sadducees when they brought him this trick question about resurrection and life after death. Verse 29 tells tells us that he would then look to them and say, you're wrong. You don't know the scriptures. You don't even know the power of God. So he's telling these religious leaders, you don't know your Bible. You've never seen the power of God displayed in your life. You guys are powerless. So you think these guys were angry? Yeah, they were, they were, they were angry. And so in this very rare occasion, a couple of religious sects at the time, Pharisees and the Sadducees come together. And they say, we're going to work together to trip up Jesus. Look at verse 34, it says they gather together, they're scheming. And then one of the Pharisees, verse 35, who's, he's a lawyer, asks a question of Jesus. And why does he ask a question of Jesus? Because he wants to know the truth? No, because he wants to trip up Jesus. He wants to test him, trick him a little bit. And what was the question? He says, hey teacher, what's the greatest commandment in the law? From an expert of the law. What, what do you got, Jesus? And Jesus gives them... An easy answer to an easy question, verse 37, says you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Every part of your being, you should love God with everything that you've got. That's easy. That's the Shema. That's the most foundational thing in the Jewish faith. Every Jewish child was going to learn that as, as, a, as a kid. And so he gives 
an easy answer to an easy question. Now, why would he have given Jesus such an easy question if he's trying to trip him up a little bit? Well, the thinking was likely that if we give him this, this real easy, kind of open-ended answer, Jesus tends to kind of go on a bit more and, and we'll entangle him and give him enough rope that he can kind of tie his own noose and, and hang himself and we'll have reason to, to lock him up. So he gives them the by-the-book answer, the Shema from the Torah, from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. You shall love the Lord with every part of your, your being. That God doesn't get our leftover love. He gets the first and all of your heart. That he's not number one on your priority list. And then there's two, three, four, five. No, he's the center of the wheel and everything else. All the spokes in your life connect to him. And so he pops the question. Jesus nails it. But wait, he's not finished. Jesus keeps talking. Is he tying this news tighter? He goes on, verse 39, he says, and the second, and they're like, aha, here it is. Wait for it. The second, he says, is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Also quoting the Torah, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, Jesus says the second commandment is, is like the first. It's as near to the heart of God as the first one. And that is that if you love God with every ounce of your soul, every ounce of your being, you will love your neighbor as yourself. Josh, we want to go really deep, so let's move on. You will love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, got it. Let's, let's move on. Let's go deep, Josh. You will love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. There's no need to go to the original language here. There's no need for me to to break down the parts of speech. The question is, do you love your neighbor as much as you love yourself? And how important is this? Verse 40, on these two commandments hangs all the law and the prophet. That is the Mosaic law and the prophets. That was their Bible. Your Bible hangs on do you love God with everything that you've got and do you love your neighbor as much as you love yourself? The Apostle Paul will later put it a little more succinctly in Galatians chapter 5, verse 14. He says, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I'm praying that we feel the weight of this. This is not just another command of Scripture. Don't gossip. Don't lie. Don't commit adultery. This is the central command of the Scriptures. When we set out to start a new church from the calling of God a few years back, we asked the question, What would happen if a church would really truly live out the two greats of Scripture? G-R-E-A-T-S. Because we've seen churches become about all kinds of things in our lifetime, haven't we? About politics, about great programming, about buildings. But what if a church lived out the two greats of Scripture. That is the great commission and the great 
commandment. The great commission, Matthew 28, 19, and 20, that, that you should go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, knowing that Jesus is with you. You don't go alone. That, that we would live out the great, the great commission, our, our great mission. But we can't fulfill that great mission that God has given us without the great commandment that he gives us here. He says the greatest commandment is love God with everything that you've got and flowing out of that, you're going to love people. And if you can't love people, you're not going to have any people around you in your life to make disciples of. If you can't love people, people don't want to hear you talk until you love them, until you express a genuine interest and care for them. And so we said, what would happen if a church could really do that? I'm not claiming that we've got it figured out, but we're trying. Things like last night, we're, we're, we're trying our very best to do that. And so we said, we're going to be people who love God and we're going to gather like this and we're going to passionately worship Him and fix our eyes on Him. And flowing out of that, we're not going to say, see you next week. We're going to say, see you midweek. See you Saturday as we love and serve our community together, as we love our neighbors as much as we love ourselves. That we would be the kind of neighbors as a church family where if we were gone, people would actually care. A year ago, we had some neighbors lived across the street away from us and a few houses down, and, and they moved. And if I can be completely honest, I don't think anybody even noticed that they were gone. A few weeks ago, however, we had some neighbors, a few houses down, that they left, and people noticed. They helped organize the neighborhood street block party, their kids were, I found out that their kids were hanging out at the older fellow's house across the street from there and they would watch Jeopardy and Wheel of Fortune every night together with the older guy. And then I had my neighbor right next door to me, uh, I think it was on Thursday, said, man, things are quiet around here without them. And I got to thinking, man, when, when Jesus says love your neighbor as much as you love yourself, as a church, would, would that be true of us? That if we were gone, people, would they even notice would they even care? Would they say something like, things are quiet around here without the church? Not that we have any plans to go, but hypothetically, if we were to be gone, would people even care? We want that to be us. And so we said, we're going we're gonna to set out to make a difference in our community. We're going to set out to not just gather Christians, but gather so that we can scatter, we can get passionate and, 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 and fueled up and, and mobilized and organized so that we can scatter and go make a difference. And so, so we started getting involved with our neighborhood uh, community revitalization organization. And so what can we do? How can we help? We started to, to get involved with a, a local low-income housing development. And how can we help? And then we added another. And then we're working on a, another, taking it all the way down Washington Street, from here all the way down to Chinatown is the plan. Just like I tell my kids, I'm going to take you down to Chinatown, buddy. Take it down to Chinatown. And then we started getting involved with neighborhood greening and, and cleaning initiatives and, and started serving neighborhood at-risk youth and providing mentorship for, for kids. And then uh, we got connected with a, a local school and started doing some help with the local school. And then, then, then we got to a place where some neighborhood traditions or traditions that our, our congregation has, has started and just excited about what God is, is doing and how he's 
using us. And those, those ways of loving our neighbors has then led to, to conversations and relationships such that now 50% of our, our people who make up our church are people that we've connected with through these things, being good neighbors. It's amazing. And we're going to continue to do that. But here's what I want to do for the next little while is I just want to invite you to assess your own heart, to assess your, your own life. And ask yourself, how much of that work and, and those initiatives that we do as a church are truly for you an overflow out of your heart? How much of that stuff that we do is truly an overflow of your life out of the Spirit of God within you that causes you to do these things, that causes you to bear this kind of fruit? Or has it largely been simply joining the church and things that the church is doing, the church initiatives? I've been stirred in my heart to not just rely on programs, but to get to a place where it's the passion of our heart to love people. That it it flows out of just an authentic, stirred heart for, for people. And I told you that I'm preaching a, a passage today that I was hesitant to preach because it's, it's very familiar to me. It's very familiar to you. I used to preach it when I was young. And I, I started thinking about those sermons when I was preaching this. I remember that I think the very first illustration that I gave with regards to uh, this passage was I remember kind of opening the sermon up as awkward as I possibly could be and I'm still awkward but I remember opening it up and and talking about how much I love tacos <laughs> and I said I love tacos and I would describe my love for tacos and then I moved into and I also love baseball and I also love my girlfriend of two weeks and I love Jesus and I love people and the point was this word love is kind of confused in our our society. It's kind of lost its, its punch. And so you get that. Then I also was kind of reminiscing a bit more into the early days of preparing the sermons around Matthew chapter 22. And I remember something even greater that was going on in my heart. And that was the same time I was preparing these sermons for Matthew chapter 22. God had led me at age 17 to start hanging out in some low-income housing developments. And I've told some of you the story before but getting to to know some kids who had been really you know dealt some tough cards in life and I remember there were nights even around you know the month or so that I had to prepare the sermon that I would lay in bed at night and I would just sob just feeling just broken for these kids something I never really had felt before one particular family I was broken for were six siblings and I'd gotten to know these kids and they all had the same mom. Every single one of them had a different dad and mom was locked up because she robbed the convenience store to pay for her drug addiction. And so I remember just laying in bed and crying. Just feeling helpless. Like I just I want these kids to know 
the love of a father. I want them to know that their mom loves them more than they love drugs. She loves drugs. I, I want them to have that, that love in their lives that, that, that I know. And I just, in my heart, it wasn't a program that did that to me. It, w- it was a passion in my heart. And, and so where does that passion come from? Where does that come from? I'll tell you where it didn't come from. It didn't come from a resolve in my life. It didn't come from, I'm just going to love better. I'm going to love harder. I'm going to love more. And I, I tell you, it didn't come from a feeling that I fell into either. It seemed to be two extremes. It wasn't, man, I just, I'm just in love with these kids. Because it wasn't anything they were reciprocating back to me in anyway. It wasn't, wow, these, these kids are awesome, they're family. It wasn't that, if I can be completely honest. If I were to assess my heart, here, here's what it was. It was the thought that these kids don't know the love of God that I had known. And the love of a, an earthly father and an earthly mother that I had known because dad left them, because mom left them, because churches would come and try to do ministry. And it was just hard. And it took time. And so they would quit and leave when the love that they were pouring on these kids through little programs that they would do was not reciprocated, was certainly not appreciated. And so they quit. And so I I just remember my heart being so moved for these kids because I just want them to know the love that, that I know. And I don't know how to break the cycle of fatherlessness. I don't know how to, to, to create lasting change. But I just want them to, to, to know the love that I know. And I, I have this love for them. It's not I'm in love with them. I just have this love for them. It's why Jesus says in these two commandments from Deuteronomy and Leviticus, says they, they go hand in, in hand. If you have a real relationship with God, I know this love, then the natural overflow of that is I want other people to know this love. You don't have to force yourself to go love other people. It just overflows. You have the root and then the fruit of love starts to come out of your life. But it comes from a pre-existing relationship. What if we understood that in all of our relationships? The love that we share comes from a pre-existing relationship. Wouldn't that change our marriages? Wouldn't that change our friendships? Wouldn't that change our relationships with coworkers, with our kids? That if the love that we are giving them comes from a pre-existing relationship. That's why 1 John 4.19 says we love why? Because he first loved us. That, that cherry tree at my house, it didn't originate at the Wyatt house. We got it from the nursery and the nursery got it from the orchard and the orchard got it from wherever they got it from, but it didn't even originate in this country. It originated in Japan. Much like the, the cherry blossom, I know a different species, but the ch- cherry blossom in Washington, D.C., they're beautiful, and people go watch those bloom every single year. It didn't originate in Washington, D.C., did it? 1912, 
the country of Japan, wanted to show love to the people of America. And so they gave us 3,000 cherry blossom trees and introduced them into our country. And now they're all over our country. It didn't originate with America. And likewise, the love that God wants us to bear, if we can understand, it's not squeeze it out. It's not muster it up. It's we love because he first loved up. It's if you love God with every ounce of your being, the natural overflow is you can't help but love other people. God is love. And he lavishes his love on us. And God's love had wheels, didn't it? It wasn't a stationary love. The love of God is not we ascend his hill. It was, that's a picture so that you can see that ultimately you need him to descend to you. It's not that we pilgrimage to Jerusalem. It's that God makes a pilgrimage to wherever in the world you are. That God leaves his most holy throne in heaven. And God becomes a man, Jesus Christ. And he took on flesh. And he dwells among us. And he comes after us. Even the least of us. Washing feet. Touching dirty people who in that culture don't touch them. You'll get sick. He says, I don't get sick. They get healed. That's our God. His love has wheels. He gives us the example to live by. But we can't go straight to the example if we don't know that love. We can't start to love unless... We are loved by the Father. Would you guys close your eyes? Close your eyes for a moment. I'd love for us to take a moment to just assess a little bit of where we're at. Assess your own heart. I think the first and most important question I can ask you is, do you know that God loves you? Do you believe that God would in fact leave the comfort of glory on his throne and enter into our mess and to live a humble life and be nailed to a cross out of great love for you? Seeing that you were trapped in your sin and that he was the only one who could save you. And the very one who we offended was also the only one who could save us from the consequence of that offense. And in the greatest irony of all time, God dies for you. Greater love has no one than this, he says, and that he would lay down his life for his friends. He loves you and he calls you, not an enemy, he calls you his friend. Do you know that God loves you And would you receive his love? God says that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord would be saved. That means saved from eternal separation from God. It means saved from what you deserve. The wages of our sin is death. And saved into a relationship with the God who loves you. It's your way of saying, God, I don't want to be independent of you anymore. 
I receive the gift that you give me. The greatest act of love. And become a Christian. And I invite you as we sing in just a minute, respond in song and in prayer to God. And then let somebody know. And then others of us in here, we're we're Christians. We want to love. And we like the idea of love, but if we, maybe some of us were to be honest, it's not necessarily a real overflow of our hearts. And the answer is not to receive some challenge to go love better, harder, stronger, more. The answer is to bask in the love that he has for you and to sing about it and to receive it again and to fix your eyes on him. And then the overflow of that is bearing fruit of love. And so in a moment we're going to sing and I want you just to think on truth that he loves you. And then maybe he'll start to shift your mind to, out of that love, people that he's, he wants to love on through you. And so, Father, thank you for the chance to learn about love just a little bit. See what it looks like, not how to execute it. And so, God, out of an understanding of love, And out of having received love, we now go and love. We would be funnels of your love. Experiencing it and letting it just flow right through us. And so God, thank you for the chance to look to you this morning. Thank you for your word. As we sing about your love, help us to to know it in a very personal way. In Jesus' name, amen.